Hello and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I'm your host, Zach Wright, an online editor for Volume 105. On this episode, I'm joined by Professor Deborah Whitus, the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Affairs and a Professor of Law at Indiana University Moore's School of Law. Professor Whitus's scholarship focuses on employment law, family law, statutory interpretation, and the significance of gender and gender stereotypes in the development of law and government policy. We discussed Professor Whitus's forthcoming article titled Equalizing Parental Leave, which discusses the inequalities generated by the current parental leave laws in the United States and suggests ways to fix them. This article grew out of a Fulbright grant to study parental leave policy in Australia, which was the basis for Professor Whitus's deep dive into the leave policies in the United States and other countries. The article will be published in the Minnesota Law Review this spring. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Professor Wattis, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I like to start conversations on this podcast by asking some pretty basic high-level questions to help situate our listeners before diving into kind of the more specific and nitty-gritty. So I have a couple of those for you. Um, my first question is real high-level. What is parental leave? Uh, that's a great question. Parental leave is a right to take time off from work, um, to care for a new baby, uh, and know that your job is waiting for you to come back to. Um, ideally, you also get paid while you're on leave, but in some instances, you might have a right to time off without pay. Gotcha. And I think you've already kind of answered this question as well, but so why, why is parental leave important? Well, um, you know, most new parents want to spend time <laughs> with a new baby. And I should say here, um, the laws that I'm talking about and most private employment policies cover the birth of a child, also the adoption of a child, and many also uh, cover a new foster placement. Um, but, you know, so new parents want to spend time with a new baby. A birth mother um, typically is also simultaneously physically recovering from the birth and often needs some time off from work. Um, and then beyond that, it's really hard to find infant child care. Um, so in addition to sort of the wanting to spend time with a new baby, a lot of parents need to spend time with a new baby um, while uh, sort of lining up child care. Um, and finding a program or a babysitter that will work with a baby. And those sort of generally you need to have a baby who's not brand, brand new mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> looking into other kind of care options. What do employers provide on their own when there's not a law requiring parental leave? Well, the short answer there is very little. Um, so a lot of employees um, would have either no paid time off at all or very minimal paid time off when they have a new child. Um, when you look specifically at parental leave or maternity leave or paid family leave, only about 20% of American workers uh, receive that as an employment benefit. And when you look at low wage workers specifically, it's only one in 10. Um, so, you know, most employees, if they have a new baby and they're just looking at their own employer's policies, they might be able to take a little bit of vacation time or sick time, or possibly a birth mother could take a little bit of short-term disability um, 
for the period of time that she's recovering from the birth itself, um, but very minimal uh, time off. Some workers or a lot of workers actually have nominally a right to unpaid time off with a new baby, but so many workers live paycheck to paycheck that that's just not um, a real option for a lot of employees. So what we see is that um, on average in states that don't have any kind of paid leave legislation, um, new dads are back at work on average within a week and many are only taking a day or two. And new mothers are back um, on average after three weeks and one in four new mothers is back after two weeks. Um, so it's really just um, extraordinarily short amounts of time off that parents are taking. Um, the other option um, is that families realize that that's too soon. And if they can afford, um, then one of the parents just quits a job to be able to stay home longer with a new baby. Um, that continues to be far more likely to be the mother as compared to the father. And that's partly because of sort of biological differences. Um, that's partly because women on average make less than men. Um, and that's partly just gender norms around who's expected um, to stay home with a baby. You know, and I think a lot of, of parents who are stay-at-home parents really value that time. But Time out of the workforce, um, particularly if it extends, you know, into several years, which which it may really um, increases or, or sort of um, has long term ramifications on women's earnings. It's a major driver of the gender pay gap. It reduces retirement savings, Social Security benefits. So where states um, or ultimately, hopefully Congress enact legislation guaranteeing new parents paid time off and then a job to go back to, it really makes um, an enormous difference for those families, both at the immediate point in time when they're, they, they have a new baby to care for and uh, over the long term. I, I should just add one other thing. So I, I know I've been talking about mothers and fathers, but I think it's really important to emphasize that trans men or non-binary persons can also become pregnant and that they need to receive the same support uh, that cisgender women do. Um, and so one of the points that I make in the paper is that any legislation needs to be sex neutral and um, inclusive of persons of all gender identities. That said, um, you know, as we sort of continue our conversation, um, I, I'll make references to birth mothers or moms, um, since the vast majority of persons who are giving birth are cisgender women. Gotcha. And I mean, I think that tracks with everything I've generally heard throughout my life experiences so far about parental leave, but something I realized I didn't really know much about, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about is kind of historically where the U S has stood on parental leave. Sure. Um, so the U.S. Um, is generally considered uh, an international laggard on these issues. <laughs> um, so more than 100 years ago, in I think it's 1919, the International Labor Organization, which is a branch of the U.N. that um, set sort of labor standards um, or suggestions for countries of what adequate labor standards is. So 100 years ago, the ILO started saying at a minimum, countries needed to provide maternity leave. That is a right for mothers to take time off from work and then have a job waiting for them to go back. 
Um, and as early as the 50s and 60s, other countries started doing that. Um, in the U.S., um, our approach to it was really different because when we um, the first federal law on point was passed in the 1990s, the Family and Medical Leave Act. And rather than providing time off specifically for mothers, the FMLA provides mothers and fathers an equal right to time off. And that was very conscious and purposeful. Um, and the idea was that um, if you just provided maternity leave, the advocates who were pushing for this law were worried that that would spur more discrimination against working mothers. Um, and also just kind of reify assumptions that women would be primarily responsible for family caregiving. And so they wanted to structure it this way to encourage uh, fathers to take leave and actually embedded the parental leave rights in a more general right to take time off to care for your own health condition or a family member with a serious health condition. Um, so it's a very different model than what's used in most other countries. And it's also unpaid. Um, as far as federal law, whereas other countries across the world guarantee at least new mothers paid leave. Okay. So could you maybe give an example of another country that does it differently from the U.S.? Sure. So I'll, I'll kind of talk generally and then with a little bit of specifics, but most countries provide a pretty lengthy period of paid maternity leave that's specific to mothers, a much shorter period of paid paternity leave, um, that's specific to fathers. So the maternity leave might be a half a year or even a year where the paternity leave would often be a week or two. Um, and then it's relatively common, at least among developed economies, to provide a period of what's called parental leave, which is awarded on a family basis and could be usable by either parent. It's usually paid at a, a less high level than the maternity or paternity leave. Um, and what we've found around the world is that um, mothers typically use their full period of maternity leave and then use the full period of shared parental leave as, as well. And so in a lot of countries through a lot of Europe, it's common to have mothers taking a year or two or even three years off work and then returning um, to a job. Wow. Some countries that have changed that and the Scandinavian countries are really the leaders in this by shifting a period of that shared parental leave and making it usable only by fathers um, and trying to sort of push fathers um, to do more hands-on care. And it's been pretty successful. Gotcha. So the U.S. has kind of just restating, so I make sure I'm understanding here. The U.S. has kind of a 50-50, a for lack of a better phrase, kind of split between uh, mother father sort of parental leave and, and Europe and other places around the, uh, the world, maybe get a bit more creative or a bit of a different combination. Is that right? Yeah. So other countries around the world usually have, um, the vast majority of the leave is available or designated specifically to mothers and only a very short piece of it is designated specifically for fathers. So, okay. yeah. So in the United Kingdom, for example, there's 39 weeks of leave that are available to mothers, um, either as a specific maternity leave or a parental leave that's not designated to the fathers and just two weeks that's designated mm. specifically to fathers. So it's really different from the U.S. model where it's 50-50. Yeah, it sounds like it. So 
I think that's actually a great transition into the focus of your piece that we're, we're here to talk about today. Um, and your article identifies a key problem with the parental leave kind of scheme in the U.S. So um, I'm kind of punting a bigger question at you here, but what is that problem? And then could you explain how it kind of came about? Sure. Uh, so the, the problem is that in the U.S., because it's 50-50 for each parent and it's an individual right of the parents, um, if a new child has two legally recognized parents, uh, they will each get a full allotment of leave. If that new child just has one parent, and we have a lot of single parent families in this country, mm-hmm. um, there's only half as much leave available. So that's really the heart of, of the issue that I um, discuss. And the challenge is to try to address that problem while also still you know, encouraging second parents who most typically will be fathers to take leave in families where there are two involved parents. Gotcha. And who suffers as a result of this problem the most? Well, single parents and their children suffer. Mm -hmm. In this country, that is disproportionately poor and working class women of color. Mm -hmm. So we've got this problem. It you know, in my head and from reading your piece, seems like it kind of came from maybe a, a well-intentioned law, but is now having some pretty drastic consequences um, and isn't quite as equal as it might be pretending to be. Um, you then go go on in your piece to advance a couple different sort of solutions. So I thought we could try to talk about each of these in turn. Um, the first one is child-based benefits. Could you explain what child-based benefits are? Sure. Um, so, and let me back up just a, a step because mm-hmm. that one of the really tricky things about thinking about this issue is that it requires you to kind of define what is equality and what mm-hmm. does it mean, <laughs> um, you know, and so the U.S. and the model that we have um, of equal leave rights for each parent um, assumes that equal treatment is is treating the parents equally and specifically mothers and fathers. And this was all sort of conceptualized um, at a time when there was not recognition of same-sex marriage or two parents of the same sex, each of whom would be recognized as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the real focus was equal treatment means treating fathers and mothers the same with the hope that that would sort of shift larger gender roles around caregiving. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a really important objective of equality, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that structure necessarily, at least the way the laws are structured now, means that children are not treated equally because if a child has two parents, then that child and her parents are allotted twice as much time off mm-hmm. than if that child has one parent. And so I think one of the tricky things is is sort of thinking about what is equality? There are other countries where that first question of equality, they answer differently. And this was kind of embedded in the answer I gave before about other countries and their leave policies. Most other countries actually conceptualize equality between the parents differently and say, we need a more kind of substantive understanding of equality that recognizes that women are differently situated from men in the context of pregnancy and childbirth. And that 
therefore providing equal opportunity often requires sort of providing more support for women, um, which is not an approach generally that we focused on in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was kind of a long preamble to the question that you asked. And I should say one other thing, because I don't think we've really highlighted it yet, is that I talked about the unpaid leave that's provided in the Family and Medical Leave Act um, in the United States as a matter of federal law. But the other development that my paper is really focusing on is that there are now nine states plus the District of Columbia that provide paid leave. Mm -hmm. They all use the same model as the FMLA, that is individual rights to each parent, but now it's paid rather than unpaid, um, which is a really important step forward. Yeah. It has also meant that while under the FMLA, when it was just unpaid, it was pretty rare for fathers to take a significant period of time off. Now that it's paid, what we're finding in these states is dads are taking more time off or second parents are taking more time off, um, which is great. You know, I think that that's a really good development, but it means that the inequity between single parent families and two parent families is getting wider. Mm -hmm. It is becoming more common in two parent families for both parents to take a significant period of time off. Gotcha. Um, so then to sort of come back to your question, so what I was trying to do in the paper is think through, all right, how do we keep the parts of the law that are working, um, recognizing that there are a lot of benefits in terms of promoting equality at home and at work to encouraging both parents and specifically dads uh, to take time off to care for new babies. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to lose that portion of the structure that the U.S. has, which is actually working and working pretty well now. Mm. Um, But I also wanted to respond to this problem of single parent families. Um, And so the idea around child-based benefits, which I put out as a proposal, but ultimately say, I don't support Mm -hmm. uh, would be just to rather than assign benefits on a parental basis, you could assign benefits on a child basis. That is every new child or every new child's family is eligible for 24 weeks of of leave. Mm -hmm. And it could be apportioned in any way by, by families that they chose. And that's kind of close to the way a lot of other countries do it. The problem with that approach is what we know from other countries is that when it is apportioned in that way, moms use the vast majority of the leave. And so we'd sort of lose the steps that are finally bearing fruit in terms of encouraging fathers to take more of this time. So assigning benefits on a child basis or a family basis would fix the problem between single parent, the disparity between single parent and two parent families, but it would undermine the other uh, sort of sex equality objective of these laws, which is encouraging both mothers and fathers in Mm -hmm. different sex families to take time off. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, so child-based benefits, uh, as I'm kind of hearing you here, would potentially push the U.S. maybe in the direction of the other countries that do it a little bit differently. And that isn't necessarily a step in the right direction. Is that kind of a fair way to say it? Yeah, at least if 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 U.S. policymakers want to continue the progress that we're seeing in terms of fathers playing a more hands-on role, I think that it would undermine that progress. Because if you just awarded on a child-based approach, we know from other countries that mothers use the vast majority of leave that's available mm-hmm. if, if it's awarded on a child basis or a family basis. Okay. That makes sense to me. So the second idea you have here for solution is just uh, maybe more straightforward, extended benefits for sole parents. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that would sort of be, um, and since that's a very clean solution, (laughs) you know, sort of say, all right, um, most of the new state laws that have been passed uh, provide, or at least when they're all the way phased in, they will provide 12 weeks of benefits to the mother of a new child and 12 weeks of benefits to the father of a new child. Um, If there's just a single parent, male or female, that person should get 24 weeks of benefits. So it would just kind of double the um, amount of benefits available to equal what, what would be available to a child with two parents. Mm-hmm. And you point out in your piece and, um, you know, kind of get in the weeds, which maybe we don't have to here, but um, there's this really interesting discussion about, well, how do you define a sole parent? Um, could you talk a little bit about that, maybe at a higher level? Sure. Um, so, and this gets into some um, distinctions in family law, which are kind of incorporated by reference into the employment laws that provide the leave rights. But essentially, um, In family law, if you have a a child born to a married couple, either same sex or in most, I mean, different sex, definitely. And in Mm -hmm. most, it's now same sex couples as well. Both members of that marriage will be automatically recognized as legal parents of the baby. So Mm -hmm. have a lesbian couple, one mom gives birth, she's married to another woman. In most states at this point, both of those women are automatically recognized as legal parents of the baby. If you have a different sex couple, a birth mom gives birth, her husband will be automatically recognized as a legal parent of the baby. And that's true even if the woman has used used, um, assisted reproductive technology of Mm -hmm. So where you're married, you almost always have two legal parents. And the default is also that those two legal parents are assumed to share custodial responsibility, care responsibility for the child. If you have an unmarried um, woman who gives birth, in most states, well, in all states, at, at least originally, she will be the only legal parent for that child. <laughs> So, um, and about 40% of new babies in the U.S. are born to unmarried parents. So if an unmarried woman gives birth, she is the only legal parent of that baby unless 
she had agrees that someone else can acknowledge paternity or parentage and that other person does that. <laughs> so, you know, with a heterosexual couple, if she knows her partner is the father of the child and he wants to sign a voluntary acknowledgement of paternity or parentage form, which is called a VAT form, and she agrees with it, um, they can both sign that form and then they will be both recognized as legal parents. But if he doesn't sign the VAT form or she doesn't want him to sign the VAT form, she will be the only legal parent. And studies kind of vary on how often VAT forms are signed, but it's usually somewhere between 60 to 90% of unmarried women, um, their partners sign a a VAT form. Mm -hmm. There's big racial disparities there. So African-American women are least likely to be married when they give birth. About 70% are unmarried. And they're also least likely to have a partner sign a VAP form. Um, So putting those two sort of facts together, about one in three babies born to an African-American woman has just one legal parent. And so like, there's some really big racial issues here with treating babies with one legal parent only providing half as much of a right to to pay time off. Um, So to get back to your question, and you're right, it does kind of call for getting a little bit in the weeds. Mm -hmm. Um, At a minimum, I think any baby who just has a single legal parent, uh, whether it's a birth mother who doesn't have a partner who signs a VAP or somebody who adopts on their own or somebody who... um, agrees to be a foster parent on their own. Um, I think that that person would clearly be recognized as a sole parent and eligible for this extended period of benefits. The harder question would be whether there would be recognition that sometimes somebody may um, sign a VAT form, but be really not involved in the um, day-to-day care of a child Um, and whether in that situation as well, one would ever say, okay, the birth mother most typically is the one doing really all the care of this child. Yes, her partner has signed a VAP, but he's not involved in the day-to-day care and not likely to be involved in the day-to-day care. And so that birth mom should also get an extended period of benefits and I think that's a, a, a hard question. And, and in the paper, I sort of call for greater study of, of what patterns look like now and how access to benefits like this might change, you know, make a, a sort of non-marital father more likely to be involved, which ultimately is good for kids, mm-hmm. whether it wouldn't make a difference. Gotcha. So just to reiterate, so there, there were sufficient drawbacks for the child-based benefits to say, maybe that's not the best way forward, but with extended benefits for sole parents, this kind of complex question and answer around how do you define a sole parent? There's just not good enough information out there about, you know, whether this would work or not to kind of say if this is a a solid solution or not. Is that, is that fair? Um, Yeah, I think that that's, one of the questions is, you know, exactly how did, how do you define it? The other question is just, um, would you have sole parents being comfortable taking twice as much time off work? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, if you imagine that the model in most states now is 12 weeks for each parent. So that's about three months each. Um, if you just doubled the benefits, that would be six months um, for a sole parent. On the one hand, I think a lot of sole parents would say, wow, that's great. Um, but in the U.S., we have a norm of about three months of parental leave. And that's partly because the Family and Medical Leave Act, the federal law that provides unpaid leave rights, provides only three months of leave. And so there is a question as to whether employees would feel like it's too long to be mm-hmm. from a job and whether they would face discrimination at work if they tried to take the, the full period of time, which might be illegal, but you know can be hard to enforce. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a second um, question, which is sort of an empirical question, which is, you know, what's the relative costs and benefits of stretching a leave period like that. Do any other countries stretch the leave period for a single parent? Yes. So that's an idea that I actually borrowed from other countries. Um, So first, um, you know, as we had talked about, many other countries provide much longer maternity than paternity leaves anyway. And since the majority of single parents are women, to some extent, it's it's less of a problem um, in a lot of other countries. But those that have restructured their leave policies to encourage fathers to take a greater share of the leave also typically have put provisions in place that address the situation um, of a sole custodian and make sure that single parent families aren't treated unfairly. So, for example, Iceland is is typically held up as one of the most progressive countries in its leave policy. It usually provides three months to the mother, three months to the father, and then an additional three months that can be used by either parent. Uh, But if there's just a single legal parent, that parent can claim the full nine months of leave. Similarly, Sweden, Norway, other countries that have a significant period of time set aside for fathers or a second parent also have provisions in place that allow a single parent to claim um, that full period of time. And some of them also have provisions that allow the single parent to share time with grandparents or other family members. Um, The third solution you propose is a bit different from the first two, I would say. Um, And that is to just extend eligibility to extended or chosen family members. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how that would work? Sure. Um, And this, you know, in some sense builds off of what I just said about the concern that maybe six months would feel like too long Mm -hmm. (laughs) to parents. So, um, so another way to think about it would be, okay, well, what if the single parent has 12 weeks or three months, um, but then a member of her extended family or chosen family, which is a term that's generally used to identify people that are not related by blood or marriage, but have a close relationship like a family relationship. Um, What if somebody in that larger group was also able to take time off to care for the new baby? And that might be a way to sort of ensure that the baby receives um, care from a family caregiver. but not uh, sort of put it all on a single parent. Um, and my my suggestion there is actually keying off of um, what exists in these laws in terms of care for serious health conditions. So I 
mentioned kind of quickly earlier that the Family and Medical Leave Act, the, the federal law that provides unpaid leave, um, provides time off to care for a new baby, um, which is known as the bonding provisions. And it also provides time off to care for a family member who is seriously ill or injured and needs someone to take care of them. Um, and the state laws that are providing paid leave have that same blended structure. So they're providing time off to care for a new baby and they're providing time off to care for a family member with a serious health condition. What's interesting is that the, the parts that deal with the new baby, it's only parents um, or someone who, who is standing in what's called in local parentis, like a parent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm who can take that time off to care for a new baby. But in terms of caring for family with a serious health condition, you can take it to care for a grandchild, for a sibling, um, and in some of these laws for chosen family, that is somebody who, who is like family, even if they're not related to blood or marriage. And so it's a much broader conception of family. And so really what I was saying is, well, maybe we should just... Um, use this broader conception and recognize that extended family can also provide hands-on care for a new baby. It's not just parents um, who can provide that care and where the baby and the family would benefit by being able to allow a family member to provide that care with the benefit of paid time off from work. Well, I'm sold. Um, as we've, as we've talked about the drawbacks of, you know, the other two solutions, um, do you see any drawbacks with extending eligibility to extended or chosen family members? Um, I think that the question there would be, um, well, first off, is it extended only for babies with just a single legal parent or would it be extended for everybody? Um, and I can see some pros and cons of both of those approaches, but um, it is certainly plausible that if you extended it for all babies, uh, what you would start to see is a pattern where, say, a birth mom takes three months and then a grandma takes three months and the father becomes less likely to do it again. Um, the other potential issue is that could raise the costs associated with these laws. So we haven't talked much about the costs. There, paid through an insurance model and they're, they're quite affordable. Um, the campaigns to enact them usually point out that the cost is less than a cup of coffee per week. Mm -hmm. um, but if you dramatically expand the scope of sort of who can claim paid leave, like obviously that could increase the cost associated with the program. Um, so one possible sort of way to address that would be to say, Okay, for most new babies, if you have two legally recognized parents or at least two parents who share custody, um, we're going to still limit the parental leave benefit to those parents, barring, you know, maybe some exceptional circumstances where one of them is clearly um, unable to provide care. Um, but if you just have a single parent, we'll broaden it up so that your single parent could take the leave and then the extended family member could take a leave. So that might be a way to kind of balance those, those two issues. That makes sense. Um, so then the, the fourth solution um, is, again, maybe one that seems a little straightforward at first, but 
um, as I was reading your, your piece, it, it did get into the weeds a little bit in a really interesting way, but it's, and that is to just separate medical benefits from bonding benefits. And you briefly talked about how the FMLA has the bonding benefit, the bonding provisions, and then the, the caring provisions. Um, could you talk a little bit about this proposed solution? Sure. Um, so again, this is kind of responding to the structure of the FMLA and then some of the changes that state law have done on that structure. So under the FMLA, that's the federal unpaid leave law, as I was just talking about, it, it covers uh, time off to care for a new child, time off to care for a family member with a serious health condition, and time off to care for yourself if you have a serious health condition or, or to recover, you know, so that you're able to continue working if you have a health condition that's interfering with your ability to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of those three purposes or uses of leave under the FMLA are subject to a 12-week annual cap. So what that means in practice is that if you have a pregnancy that has any kind of serious complications where you can't work for a period of the pregnancy, any time that you take off under the FMLA to deal with the health needs during pregnancy is subtracted from the time that you can take off after the birth of the baby to care for the baby. So if you had, um, you know, problems in your pregnancy and you were told by your doctor with three months left of the pregnancy, that the medical advice was really like you should go on bed rest and are no longer able to work. You might take FMLA leave for that period, but then when the baby's born, you'll have no more time left because you spent your whole 12 weeks dealing with the medical needs during the pregnancy. Um, many of the state laws that have been enacted that provide paid leave change that model. And so they separate out the medical benefits for pregnancy or for any other kind of medical health need from the bonding benefits. Um, meaning that you could take time off during the pregnancy or you could take time off to recover from the physical effects of childbirth. And those would be medical time off (laughs) and Mm. would still have a period of time that was protected that you could take to care for the new child, which is, would be sort of your bonding period. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really, so what that means in practice is a birth mother typically can take six to eight weeks of time to recover from childbirth. If she hasn't needed to take time off during the pregnancy itself, and then still has 12 weeks of bonding with the baby, whereas her partner, male or female, um, will just have the 12 weeks of of bonding with the new baby. Um, And what I think is is attractive about that is, it really, I think, is um, a better sort of more substantive understanding of what equal treatment is in the sense that pregnancy and childbirth are serious health conditions or, you know, can Mm -hmm. uh, medical needs associated with them. And it's just ensuring that they're treated like any other medical health condition um, and then still protecting the opportunity to spend time caring for a new baby. Um, And so without necessarily making any special provisions for single parents, if other states or federal law 
separate the medical benefits from this this period of bonding time, it functionally lengthens the period of time off with pay um, for at least single birth mothers. That's not all sole parents, but it's the vast majority Mm -hmm. (laughs) parents. And so I think that could also make a real um, important difference, particularly for um, sort of poor and working class women who without these protections are taking practically no time off work. Yeah, that makes sense. I So now that we've covered the four solutions you propose, um, I have maybe some more policy-based questions um, that I'd just like to get your opinion on. So it sounds like this final solution, separating medical benefits from bonding benefits, um, is the one that if you had to pick, you would endorse most highly. Is that right? No, not necessarily. <laughs> okay, perfect. That's actually great because I was going to ask... Um, <laughs> Which one do you think would be the most realistic to see enacted, be it at a state level or even the federal level? Well, so in that respect, it's the one that already is enacted. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so in that sense, um, it does seem sort of, you know, clearly politically viable because it's already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I would say that already exists in the laws that are enacted and really is just a question of sort of implementation um, is this, so the laws as enacted, I think I mentioned this in passing, provide time off for parents uh, to take time off with a new baby and also individuals who, who are recognized as um, serving in local parentis to a new baby or are are recognized as formal legal guardians of a new baby or new child. Um, And that in local parentis standard already exists in laws. It's already in the FMLA and all the state laws. Um, And it arguably could cover a broader range of sort of extended family or chosen family who are providing hands-on day-to-day care for a new child. Um, and so that's also one that um, already exists, but I think that the agencies that are administering these laws and sort of the descriptions of sort of who can claim rights um, need to do more to highlight, it might be possible for extended family who are really serving a parental role and that they're providing hands-on day-to-day care for a child. And especially if they're also providing financial support, um, could meet this in local parentis standard. And so they might already have a right to take time off. Um, so those are two that already exist in the law as it mm-hmm. is. Um, beyond that, I think I'm not sure where I come down between the extension of benefits for a sole parent versus expansion sort of more clearly without necessarily having to go through meeting the in local parental standard just to say extended family or chosen family can take benefits. Um, or maybe I would say have them both be an option yeah. and <laughs> families choose what works for them. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that I, I come down with a, a firm one is clearly better than the other. I see some different pros and cons of both, but mm-hmm. both would make a huge difference for single parents who right now are really shortchanged. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Um, on the the in loco parentis kind of agency um, sort of discretion thing that you just mentioned, um, I'm curious, has there been movement on that recently or has it stayed pretty consistent across administrations on how the agency would interpret or, you know, enforce or however they go about utilizing that standard? Yeah, so there's some really helpful um, guidance from the Federal Department of Labor talking about that standard under the FMLA um, from 2010, uh, which I think was probably developed uh, in response particularly to the needs of same-sex couples who at that point, of course, could not marry in Mm -hmm. many ways. Um, And also, you know, often it was hard for both members of a same-sex couple to be recognized as legal parents. Um, But that guidance makes pretty clear that it could also apply to a grandmother playing this role or an aunt playing this role or an uncle playing this role. Um, So there's useful guidance out there um, that could be applied not just at the federal level, but sort of as a model at the state level. Um, And actually, I mean, since writing this article and a shorter version of it that I, I published in something called The Conversation, um, it actually helped spur a roundtable on this particular um, issue uh, with a bunch of advocacy organizations and a lot of conversation about how to work with administrative um, offices at the state level and the federal level to, to promote this possibility um, and to, to ensure um, that the forms and other things that are being developed make clear that this is an option. And so I am hopeful that um, sort of raising, you know, it's what every academic dreams of, like you yeah. your article and someone notices it and wants to talk about it and wants to think about solutions. Yeah, that's really exciting. Have have there been any sort of concrete advances or do you see any maybe more substantial changes coming in the future given that experience or given the current political makeup? Well, I think that there's a lot of hope um, that... Um, Potentially, this Congress will um, advance a paid um, leave program at the federal level. I mean, we haven't really talked about COVID, but Mm -hmm. um, COVID has really made clear to a lot of people that we need to do a better job making it possible for workers to stay home when they're sick um, and to stay home and care for family members who are sick. And, you know, as we've talked about the model in this country usually is to, to deal with those kinds of needs together with parental leave, um, which was a pressing need before COVID as well. Um, so, um, you know, I think that there is, is, is hope that maybe there will be policy change at the federal level. And I personally am hopeful that in the process of doing that, um, there would also be some modifications of the bill that's been introduced in the past um, or, or bills that have been introduced in the past at the federal level to deal with this single parent issue. Um, whether that's best done in bill language or through sort of administrative documents, you know, there's different pros and cons of, of ways of addressing that question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, reading pieces and in, in work like, like yours does make me feel hopeful. So hopefully there, there are some changes that come down the pipe here. And I should say, I mean, these state laws are very popular. They are mm-hmm. gaining momentum. So as I think I said there were nine states um, with laws now providing paid leave. Uh, six of those have been passed since 2017. So oh, wow. definitely um, a lot of sort of enthusiasm and momentum on this, this issue more generally of paid leave. Um, and Colorado's law was passed in 2020 by ballot referendum. 
uh, which was the first one that was passed by ballot referendum. But it, it responds to the fact that like parents know they need this and workers mm-hmm. they need this. And it's very clear <laughs> um, when you talk to voters, not just with Democratic voters, but also with Republican voters, because, you know, I think everybody understands us responding to our real need. Absolutely. Professor Wattis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. The Experto Crede podcast is the official podcast of the Minnesota Law Review, a student-run law review published by students at the University of Minnesota Law School. For current and past issues, and for more information, visit minnesotalawreview.org. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or the Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.